If you are visiting and you have kids with you, you can send them up. We just do a little children's message. I think I got, I think I've collected all the children. Okay. How are you guys doing today? It's awesome to see you. Are you excited to be in church? Yeah. You okay. Well, would you be excited if uh, we were going to eat a bunch of candy? Yeah. Okay. We need to be that excited to be here uh, worshiping Jesus, right? Okay. Let me ask you guys a question. Is it always easy to be a Christian? What makes it hard to be a Christian sometimes? What makes it hard to follow Jesus sometimes? Yeah. Okay, all right. What, why is it sometimes hard? Yeah, buddy. That, 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 that you kind of don't know how people say. You, yeah, you don't know what people are going to say when you talk about Jesus. That's true. Anybody else? Yeah. Sometimes when we follow Jesus, we're kind of set apart from the world, right? We're different. Yeah? Yeah, so sometimes when we live for Jesus, people reject us, right? You know, that's something that all of us struggle with. You know, all the adults out there that follow Jesus, they struggle with the same thing. You know, Jesus said that if we're going to live a righteous life, if we're going to follow him, we will be persecuted. We will experience those things. But you know that he provided a way for us to stay strong. You guys say strong. strong. Like I make a muscle. Strong. There's ways for us to stay strong in Jesus. Can I tell you three ways? Number one, pray. Every day. Do you know you can talk to God every single day? Anytime you want, God's always there. He's always listening to you. Number two, we can use this. What is this? It's a Bible. We can read the Bible. Did you know that? The Bible is full of truth from God that teaches us how to live our life and to follow him. That's right. And then finally, what's this right here? Where are you guys at? Who are, who are all those people out there? Yeah, there are other believers. And we can get together like on Sundays, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, whenever. And we could have what the Bible calls fellowship or friendship and time together. So when you walk through difficult times, right, when people maybe reject you or your beliefs in Jesus, just remember, we can do what? Pray, read the Bible, gather with believers, fellowship with believers, friendship with believers. Very, very good. The word of the day today, you ready, is Paul. The word of the day is Paul. So count how many times I say that word, all right? Thank you guys for coming up here. You can go have a seat now. All right, church, take out a copy of God's Word with me today. Open it up to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. I brought something up with the kids that I just want you to think about today during my message. Something that Paul is going to undergo in Acts chapter 24 that I believe all of us at one point or another in our lives will also experience to one degree or another. What will I do when I am put on trial for my faith in Jesus? What will I do when I am put on trial for my faith in Jesus? 
Paul is a missionary called by God and also an apostle, called by Jesus specifically to go out into foreign lands and to preach the gospel to the Gentiles so they could hear about Jesus and be saved. Paul had completed two successful missionaries. Thousands, if not tens of thousands of people, had heard the gospel and believed in Jesus. He planted dozens upon dozens of church of churches around the Mediterranean. Now Paul is called by Jesus to go back to Jerusalem to share with his people about the magnificent works that God is doing among the Gentiles. As Paul proceeds to go back to Jerusalem, he understands that he's walking back to be arrested and persecuted for his faith. Now, as he enters into Jerusalem and meets with the church leaders, Paul submits to them, agreeing to go through a Jewish ritual purification process to demonstrate that he is also a law-abiding Jew as well as a follower of Jesus. While he's fulfilling that ritual in fulfillment of what the law commands him to do, he is unjustly accused of breaking the Old Testament law. A riot ensues around Paul in the temple. Lysias, the Roman commander, comes in, sees the riot, rescues Paul from his accusers. Next, puts him in front of the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court, so that they can interview Paul, and so Lysias can figure out what exactly Paul's done wrong. During his time in front of that court, Paul demonstrates that he had done nothing wrong, but was in fact being persecuted for his faith in Jesus, and specifically his belief in the resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of the dead. Lysias understands that this is sort of above his pay grade. He's like, I can't really deal with this. So he sends him away. He sends him to another Jewish leader, and in that time, Paul is going to stand trial. He's uh, sent away uh, by Calvary, Roman Calvary, men with spears, men on horses, full protection, hundreds of soldiers move him to a new place so he can actually stand trial for whatever they think he's done. And so he stands there now on trial, and that's where we find Paul. And what I want to demonstrate for you today, church, is that you too will stand trial for your faith in Jesus. You may never stand in front of a, a, a government court system, although you may. But you will stand trial, whether it's in your workplace, at your kitchen table, among your family, or just out on the fishing boat with your friends. You will be questioned about your faith. I want to give you some tools. I want to challenge you to have a strong faith in Christ so when that day comes, you can stand strong and stand firm for Jesus. And like Paul, continue to share the gospel. There's something every one of us should know to do now before the first accusation is made about our faith in Jesus. First, live a righteous life because condemnation is coming. Live a righteous life because condemnation is coming. Look at the text, Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus. And they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have, through you, attained much peace, 
And since by your providence, reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness, but that I may not worry you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. So Lysias, the Roman commander in Jerusalem, has sent Paul to the governor of the region named Felix. Paul's in the barracks there, protected by Felix overnight. Ananias, some of the other Jewish leaders, Ananias is the high priest, then uh, several other Jewish leaders, and a hired gun named Tertullus approach Felix so they can try Paul. So Felix can listen to these accusations that they've made against Paul. They've really brought out the big guns. Tertullus is going to be this private attorney. Someone hired by them to make the case in front of Felix. Tertullus makes this opening statement, which was common during that day, called the Capitatio Benevolentiae. In other words, his first few statements are to butter him up, right? And so he stands before Felix, and first he congratulates Felix for bringing peace to the land. Oh, great Felix, you brought peace to this land. That, that's not true. When Felix was governor, there was revolt after revolt after revolt between the Jews and the occupying Romans. But what Tertullus is doing is he's playing on this culture that Rome had developed called the Pax Romana, the peace that Rome brings. They believe that as they conquered people, they were actually releasing them from their wars. They were doing the world a favor by occupying their lands. And so Tertullus prays on that. He says, oh, oh great Felix, you've brought peace to our land. Second, he thanks Felix for the reforms he introduced to the nations. There is no extra-biblical literature that demonstrates that Felix brought any kind of reform for the Jewish people. In fact, he ruled the Jewish people very, very harshly against their will. Finally, Tertullus completes his flattery with one final statement referring to the widespread reception of Felix as governor. Basically, he tells Felix, all of us love you. You're so amazing. He sounds like a pretty good lawyer, right? They didn't love Felix. They hated Felix. So Felix sits there while Tertullus lays it on pretty thick. Felix knows none of that's true, but he is a vain leader. And so he receives it all with a smile on his face. Next, Tertullus is going to lay out their case against Paul. Now he's going to make a threefold charge against Paul. Look at verse 5. For we have found this man to be a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you by examining him yourself concerning all these matters. You will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. So Tertullius makes three charges against Paul in front of Felix. Number one, Paul is a troublemaker and he causes riots wherever he goes. Now, part of that is true. Paul is 
a part of riots wherever he goes. You walked with me through the book of Acts. You know Paul would enter a city. Paul would first go to the, the synagogue and tell them about Jesus. He would be rejected most times. He would leave. He would go out in the public square. He would start to share the gospel. And soon after, a group of Jews would gather the people together and they would get a riot. And then Paul would be chased out of town, and then he would have to go to the next town and preach the gospel. That's what happened. Notice, Paul isn't the cause of the riots. Paul is proclaiming the gospel. It was the Jews in those areas who were stirring the crowds up and causing the riots. The second one. Tertullus says that Paul is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So during this time, Judaism had many different sects. Uh, they had Pharisees and Sadducees. They had um, all these different sects that also were, were Jewish in nature, but, but fought against Rome. And they would, they would cause all kinds of rebellions and, and try to start wars and, and, and cause difficulties. So what Tertullus is trying to do is paint Paul and the Nazarenes, which was another name for Christians or Jesus followers, because Jesus was from Nazareth. He was Nazarene. He tried to paint Paul into this corner as being this ringleader of this horrible group of people who stood against and rebelled against Rome. And then number three, Paul tried to desecrate the temple. This charge is based on a rumor circulated by Asian Jews who had followed Paul to Jerusalem. You can read about it in Acts 21 verse 29. They accused Paul of taking Gentiles into the temple, which never happened. Paul was seen walking in Jerusalem with Gentiles and then later was in the temple in a place appropriated only for Jews with other Jews. And so Paul did not desecrate the temple, but a rumor was started that he had. And that was the rumor which started the rebellion inside the temple when the commander Lysias had to remove Paul from the Jews. These three false accusations place Paul in a difficult position of both standing for Jesus during persecution and potential prosecution in one of the harshest penal systems in the world. And yet, God allowed all of this to happen as a part of his plan to fulfill the Great Commission. You know, we learn in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that if you desire to live a godly life, if you desire and plan to follow Jesus and live in accordance with his word, you will be persecuted. That's a promise from the word of God. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, as Jesus sent out his disciples to go and proclaim the gospel just in the towns around Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, he told them, I send you out as sheep among wolves. If you plan to live for Jesus, if you plan to walk from this place and fulfill the Great Commission, if you plan to tell people about how God radically changed your life, you will be persecuted. That's a promise from Jesus and from the Word of God. The question I have for you today is am I ready to stand for Christ? Am I ready to endure dirty looks, slander, false accusations, 
unlawful arrest and imprisonment for my Lord. You know, COVID-19 provided a glimpse of what will one day be a common practice in our culture. Churches were closed by law. Pastors and leaders whom I know were arrested and fined for gathering saints to worship God. And Christians will be persecuted for resisting the tidal wave of secularism that is washing over this country today and will increase in years to come. We know it's coming because Jesus said it's coming. We are blessed by God to live in a nation right now that's a bastion of freedom to worship Jesus. But if I were to go and get my friends who live in Afghanistan or Iran and some parts of Africa, they could tell you what it's like to be persecuted for Christ. To be illegally tried, illegally arrested, murdered for their faith in Jesus. The question I have for you today, church, born-again believer who's gathered in this place to worship Jesus and the challenge that comes with it is, am I ready to stand for Jesus. If you believe that that day is coming, if you believe what the Word says about persecution, we all have to answer that question. If the persecution begins tomorrow, am I ready to stand for Christ? My worry for American Christianity is that we're not. I'm terrified that we are unprepared for the testing and refinement of our faith that awaits us in the future. You know, when COVID started, Tom Rayner and his uh, consulting group saw that it was coming. They knew what, what was being planned regarding uh, difficulty in COVID and the closing of churches and things of that nature. And they said, this is what we believe is going to happen 30% of the church is going to leave and they're never going to come back. You know, I read that. I thought, not my church. Not this church. I know everybody in our church. We're small enough, right, where I know everybody's name. I know y'all. I love you guys. I get to talk to almost all you guys regularly. COVID happened. We took measures as we felt led by the Lord. We might do some things differently if we had to do that again, which hopefully we never have to do that again. And we started gathering again. And our ministry started to reopen and restart, and, and God continued to move and do great things among us. 30% of our church didn't come back. Just like Tom Rayner said. Why? And what will happen when persecution begins in America? What will happen when we can no longer freely gather to worship Christ? When Bibles are taken and burned? When people are fired from work because they're Christians? Or worse, martyred for their faith in Jesus? Will we be ready to stand for Jesus? Like our brothers and sisters in Iran, in northern Africa, and other parts of the world. I'm afraid that we Christians in America are too soft. That our faith isn't strong enough 
for the fire that comes. Surveys show us that most Christians pray less than three minutes a day. I wouldn't call that a vibrant prayer life. When persecution comes, and when we're unable to do anything else under our own strength, and we've got to turn to Christ, will we turn to Him in prayer? Or will that persecution lead us away from Him to a safer place? I also know from national surveys that most Christians never or rarely read the Word of God. When our government tells us what we will and won't do, and we have to start to ask questions like, is that really what the Lord wants me to do? When what we're commanded to do is contrary to the Word of God, will we know? How will we know if we're not studying the Word? If we don't know what God's plan is for our lives as believers? Although this is untrue for most of you, which I'm thankful for, most believers attend church once a month, if at all. When persecution comes, as Jesus said it would, and the gospel divides families and friends and workplaces and neighborhoods and communities, Do you know who you'll have? Us. The fellowship of the saints. When persecution comes, you'll have your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so today's the day to grow that bond of fellowship. To grow with one another so we know who will be there when it gets tough. We'll have the shoulder to cry on when our moms and dads, when grandparents, when best friends, people we spent our whole life with forsake us because we're following Jesus. We're going to need each other. Those are the three things that got Paul through this trial. His relationship with Jesus through a strong and vibrant prayer life. His knowledge of the Word especially what he heard directly from Jesus on the road to Damascus, as well as the fellowship of the saints. How many times was Paul saved by the believers? How many times did they sneak him out of town? How many times did they take the heat from a a city official so Paul could get out and complete the mission? We need each other. I mention these things not, not to make you feel guilty, but to compel all of us to grow in our prayer and our our study of the Word and our fellowship with the saints. May the Holy Spirit convict our hearts and lead us to be strong in our faith because I know that you can be, and many of you are. But there's room to grow for all of us. Amen? All right, this illegal trial continues. And what we're going to learn next is your righteousness and good works in Jesus' name will verify your innocence. Look at verse 10. So when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, 
Knowing that for many years you have been judged to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So Paul says nothing untrue. He's not going to butter him up. He basically says, I'm happy to come and make my defense in front of you. He continues. Verse 11. He addresses each of Tertullius's um, accusations in order here. Beginning in verse 11. He responds to the charge that he's a troublemaker who causes dissension and riots all over the world. Look at verse 11. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, neither in the temple nor in synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges which they now accuse me. It's been 12 days since Paul came to Jerusalem. Basically, Paul says, listen, where, where's the evidence that I was causing riots? Where, where are the witnesses? What was I saying to people that was, that was causing all this division and then derision? He basically says, there, there's no witnesses. Where are the Asian Jews that came before Lysias and said, this guy is causing a riot? Where, where are they? They're conveniently missing. Next, Paul addresses the charge against him that he is a leader of the Nazarene sect. Notice, Paul never misses an opportunity to use his platform to share the gospel. So Paul now shifts into evangelist mode. During a trial for his very life. That takes some guts, right? He's not just arguing to save his own skin. He's arguing right now so that they can hear the gospel and be saved. Verse 14, he continues. But this I admit to you, that according to the way, which is a name for Christians or believers or followers of Jesus, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both God and before men. Paul corrects their mislabel of him as a leader of the Nazarene sect. Basically, what Paul is saying is, no, 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 I serve the legitimate Savior of the Jews and Gentiles. I'm a follower of the way. You know, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's Jesus. Jesus is the rightful next step in the life of every Jew. And this is what Paul is declaring here. We're not some sect. I'm just fulfilling what the Old Testament said by proclaiming that Jesus is Savior. Said, by the way, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Some to salvation and some to judgment. Finally, Paul discusses the charge that he desecrated the temple. Look at verse 17. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make an accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. 
other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. What exactly is Paul telling Felix? He's telling them, him, I've done nothing wrong. They have no witnesses to demonstrate that I started a riot in the temple, nor that I brought any Gentiles into the temple. No, no, no. I'm on trial in front of you today because I'm a follower of Jesus. Because I believe that he died and was resurrected on the third day. That I believe that a resurrection is still to come. A judgment. That's why he's on trial. Paul ultimately proved that he is not guilty of any crime against Jewish law because he was a righteous man who obeyed their law. He's on trial because he believes in Jesus. One day, you will be on trial for your faith in Christ as well. Like I said, that may be a trial in a court of law. That may be a trial at your kitchen table in front of a friend, a family member, a loved one, a neighbor. But the Bible promises that when we live a godly life, we will be persecuted. And so how do we live a life preparing for that? Number one, obey the law unless it contradicts the Bible. Listen to Romans 13, 1 and 2. It says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the guidance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So, in preparation for that persecution, live a righteous life. Live in obedience with the law of the land to the degree that it doesn't contradict the word of God. And number two, do good works in Jesus' name. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Live a life such that when you're brought before your accusers, the world can't help but notice that you did good things in the name of Jesus. <coughs> Believers should be the ones who take care of those in need. Who are the shoulder for someone to cry on. Who pray for someone who's walking through a difficult time. When we obey the law and do good works in Jesus' name, the accusations against us will be unfounded, even if we have to continue to endure persecution. So Governor Felix, he hears both sides of the case, right? Both of them presented their case before him, and now it's time for him to respond. The final point of today's message is this. Turn your persecution into proclamation. Turn your persecution into proclamation. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge of the way, so he's kind of wise to what these guys are saying, put them off saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders for the centurion for him to be kept, that's Paul, in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So Felix knew exactly what was happening. He was experienced in Jewish tradition as well as in the belief in Jesus. 
He knows that Paul has not done anything wrong. And so he tells them, we're going to wait. I'm going to consider this. And I'm going to wait for Lysias to get here. Even though we see in the text that Lysias had no plans to come down and meet with him. He knew that Paul had not broken any laws. And yet, in the culture and tradition of Rome, he did not want to have any trouble. So here's how it works. If you were an authority under Rome, if you were a governor or a commander, your job was to keep the peace. And if you couldn't keep the peace, they would remove you from your post, penalize you, and put someone else where you are. And so they did peacekeeping. That was their their rule. That was their duty above all things. So Felix sees that this is really a a, a no-win for him. He doesn't want to jail and and, um, execute Paul, but at the same time, he doesn't want to let him go because he could have another riot on his hands. And we know that he was already on thin ice. And so he keeps Paul. Continued in verse 24. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became frightened. He said, go away for the present. When I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often to converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Paul, a Roman citizen and follower of Jesus, was illegally imprisoned for two years. During that time, what did Paul do in the midst of his persecution? He proclaimed the name of Jesus. Of all the people that you would hate if you were stuck in prison, who would be number one? Would it not be Felix? Right? If that guy illegally put me in jail, and by the way, being in a Roman Roman jail, even though Paul was in a barrack, so it was a little bit different, a little bit better, and he was allowed to have people come and, come and go, he was still in chains. He was still unable to leave. Of all the people that I would be mad at, I think Felix would probably be number one, right? And yet during this time, over two years, Paul continues to share the gospel with his captor. That's a strong faith, right church? That's a faith that withstands persecution and testing. He was an innocent man, unlawfully imprisoned and inappropriately treated, and yet he completed God's mission for his life. I just have a challenge for you as we close. Are you ready for the persecution that comes? Are you ready for arrest, imprisonment? Are you ready to lose your job, your family, your friends, everything you hold dear for Jesus? Because you know, when Jesus called us to faith in him, he told us, that we had to be ready to forsake it all, to follow him. We will endure persecution for living a righteous life. 
where that persecution arises, in your workplace or around your kitchen table, in front of the local judge here in Key West, are you ready to stand for Christ? That's our challenge for today. We're going to have a time of invitation now. In just a minute, everybody's going to stand up. The altar is going to be open. And maybe as I kind of laid that challenge out before you, like I was as I prepared this message, maybe you felt like, God, I want my faith to be stronger. I don't know if I'm ready, but I want to be. This is a time for you to receive that challenge and just lay that in front of the Lord and say, God, I want to be ready. I want to grow stronger in my faith. I want to pray more. I want to remain focused on your word more. I want to gather with saints more. I want a strong faith that stands in that time of testing. If you need to come to the altar and pray, if you need me to pray with you about that, when we stand, come forward. If, if you don't have faith in Jesus yet, but you want to, I want to talk to you about that. Or we had a big class of folks come through our new members class. Some of you need to come forward and take that last step of, of joining our church. This is the time to do that as well. Whatever God's compelling you to do in this moment of decision, take this moment to take a step of faith in Him. Would you all stand with me? Heavenly Father, I pray over this time of invitation.